Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with David Nickel. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Alistair Stewart. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending quest to improve our own. I spend a lot of time thinking about exactly what this show is, and at the moment, I kind of feel like its closest analogue is that moment in Rocky Barbella where he goes to Apollo Creed's old trainer who politely informs him of all the things he's been doing wrong throughout his career, <laughs> and he instantly opens the door to whole new ways of looking at punching people in the face. Now, you swap out the punching people in the face for writing incredible fiction, that's what this show is. <laughs> Which which constantly makes me think, you know, we need a new theme song. We need to throw in some Rocky music in the background here. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Alistair Stewart, the man of words, crafter of fabulous game fiction, commentaries on media in all shapes and sizes, host and evil genius of many of the Escape Artist podcasts, my dear friend, who I actually embraced for the first time at Worldcon this year. It is a delight to have you in the virtual studio studios seated by my side sir thank you so much i am pumped for this podcasting event thank you so much for having me dave it's always a pleasure absolutely awesome well let's 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 not bandy words as as much as you and i al could certainly sit down over a cuppa and some biscuits and uh uh natter on we're here for a whole different purpose we have a guest host waiting in the wings may i introduce him to you sir please do ah excellent excellent well Al, you know that I research these guest hosts so I can craft a proper introduction to bring them onto the show. And my research for this particular guest host took a really long time. Uh, And it's not because there was like tons of information out there about him, uh, but my usual snatch and grab tactics for information in those interviews simply didn't work. I usually go in, I look for phrases like, in high school, I, or I remember as a child, and I you know grab that data and compile it into these narratives. That did not work because I ended up reading the entire damned interview from beginning to end. Every single time. Why? Because our guest host's literary style, even when he's writing as himself, is is like an inescapable gravity well. All right. You approach thinking you'll just hover in orbit for just a moment. And then three sentences later, you're sucked in and hurtling towards the planet's surface. And you're okay with that because it's just that damn good. Now, he grew up in central Ontario and near Toronto, the son of a landscape painter and a high school teacher. Now, both of his parents were artists, so the notion of making a living in the arts was kind of baked into his human being DNA. Uh, He actually started writing before he could write. 
which is kind of cool. At three years old, he would dictate stories to his mother. And friends, this was Captain Scarlet fan fiction. Uh, And for those that don't know, Captain Scarlet was a British sci-fi TV show made with puppets brought to you by the same people that brought us Thunderbirds. Now, his mom would write down these stories he dictated, staple them together, and then our three-year-old guest host would illustrate them. Now, these literary adventures framed our guest host's awareness of the idea of, and I quote, stringing out a line of crap in a way that amuses people, (laughs) which is a wonderful summary of, of writing in general. Now, in elementary school, he developed a genuine hunger for storytelling and exploring narratives, becoming a voracious reader, which, as we all know, just feeds the addiction. Uh, He started with Edgar Allan Poe, which really didn't make a lot of sense to his young artistic tastes, so he moved on to H.P. Lovecraft, which really didn't help. Uh, But then he found Stephen King, and he hit gold, and he moved on to Larry Niven and Ian Fleming. Ian Fleming, didn't didn't he write those James Bond novels? I think, yeah, maybe maybe we'll circle around to that later. I, I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) His parents were genuinely concerned about his genre choices, concerned that it might be a sign of mental illness, which, as we all know, it is. Uh, By junior high school, writing had become a career choice. He was driven to show people the strange places in his imagination. But around high school and early college, he realized showing people wasn't enough. Readers needed to feel those places. And in a stroke of creative maturity, he decided he didn't have enough experience yet to pull it off. So when he graduated from Ryerson University in 1986, he did so with a journalism degree. Now, he spent a few years as a reporter, and eventually, in his mid-twenties, he decided he finally had enough experience with the world to actually say something interesting about it. So he wrote a bunch of stories. But While they certainly may have been interesting, they apparently weren't sellable. Uh, But then he made the acquaintance of Judith Merrill, an influential sci-fi author and political activist, who introduced him to the Cecil Street Irregulars, a writer's group named after the Cecil Street Community Center in downtown Toronto, where they met. Now, with Merrill... As the founder, the group attracted some top-shelf writers, including Cory Doctorow, Carl Schrader, and Peter Watts. It was conducted Milford-style, with members critiquing each other's work while the writer shuts the hell up. And this was exactly what our guest host needed. After a year or so of working with the Irregulars, his stories started selling. And he continued to attend meetings and still does, actually. And, of course, it was there that he met the noted sci-fi author Madeline Ashby, who would eventually, to the delight of all who know them, consent to marry him. Now, his first fiction sale was to On Spec magazine. Their spring 92 issue featured his story, The Killing Way. That year, he also collaborated with Carl Schrader on The Toy Mill, a team-up that would be repeated a few years later with the novel The Klaus Effect. 1994 saw the Sloan Men being printed in the Northern Frights 2 anthology and then reprinted in Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling's Year's Best Fantasy and Horror number 8. 
And it was also adapted for television, released under the title The Hunger and starring Margot Kidder and Terrence Stamp. And this, this, this story just keeps on rolling out and would be included in his collection Monstrous Affections in 2009, released by the astonishing Cheezine publishing company pioneered by Brett Savory and Sandra Casturi. Now, interesting side note, Monstrous Affections was initially to be titled Pants Are For Company and Other Stories. And this brings up an important lesson for all aspiring authors. Never name your anthology at a table strewn with empty beer bottles, right? Fortunately, everyone eventually sobered up and settled on Monstrous Affections as a title, which, by the way, went on to win the Reader's Choice Black Quill Award for Best Dark Genre Fiction Collection in 2010. In 1997, he shared a Bram Stoker Award for short fiction with Rat Food that he wrote in collaboration with Edo Van Belkum. Now, more publications followed, and then the spring of 2011 saw the release of his first solo novel titled Utopia, A Tale of Terrible Optimism, again published by Cheezine. Now, it was a tale about the early American eugenics movement set in an experimental utopian community in northern Idaho. Now, the research for this one was exhaustive, as you might imagine, but also very healthy. See, he had become friends with Peter Watts, who, in addition to being an author, was also a biologist through the Cecil Street Irregulars. Now, they were both early morning runners, so as they logged hundreds of miles in their runs along the Toronto waterfront, Peter would coach our guest host on the finer points of biology and eugenics. Now, interestingly, Utopia would have come out a lot earlier, but there was this story called Rasputin's Bastards. Now, he had this plan to release this thing right after he won the Stoker Award, but this simple little fantasy thriller mutated into this epic doorstopper of a psychic spy thriller <laughs> and wrestling with this monstrous beast eventually exhausted him. And while it was out being rejected by publishers, he wrote Utopia. <laughs> now, happy ending, though. Rasputin's Bastards would eventually see publication in 2013. 2014, even more of his works hit the stands. Geisters, a novel about poltergeists, the men who love them, and modern marriage, and Knife Fight and Other Struggles, uh, the title story of which was featured on the fabulous Pseudopod Horror Fiction podcast and narrated brilliantly, I might add. <clears throat> And this year, he and his life mate, Madeline Ashby, just released License Expired, an unauthorized anthology of James Bond stories featuring a stellar constellation of literary luminaries because Canada is civilized about copyright law and the copyright on Bond just ran out in Canada. He also works as a reporter committing journalism involving Toronto municipal politics for a chain of community news papers. He thinks cyclopses are cool, destructive, and damned sexy. He once used the word squicky to describe one of his novels, 
Part of his nuptial celebrations included dancing with his radiant bride in a meat locker, surrounded by dangling pork carcasses. And if you want to find him in a crowd, he'll tell you, look for the hairiest person in the room, and that usually works like a charm. Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, David Nickel. David, holy crap, a, a, a lifetime of fabulosity behind you. The license expired thing just coming out this year and so much more ahead. I express my eternal gratitude that you could actually find a slice of time in all of that awesomeness, including your nuptials, uh, uh, to, to, to sit down and speak with us, sir. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. It's great to be here, Dave. Awesome. Awesome. And and let me just formally wish you and Madeline hearty congratulations on your wedding and the celebration that ensued. Your pictures on Facebook were an inspiration to weddingers everywhere, sir. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the, the light was good. The light was good. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. I'm telling you, the light in Toronto is fabulous. It's better than Paris. So actually, actually, Dave, before we dive into this, I did have a question. I'm not going to start the timer yet, so this doesn't count. But um, the term to commit journalism, this comes up often in your interviews and your bios. Uh, what does it mean exactly to commit journalism? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, it, it's it's a bit of an arch way of suggesting that journalism is a is an act that you commit that it's uh, that you're in a sense committing a genial assault on people's privacy. <laughs> yes, uh, it's. I mean, ultimately, you do journalism, but I like to think of it as a little bit more larcenous. Okay, and why is that? Do you think? Well, I think that if you're only telling the stories that people want you to tell, then you're committing transcription. You are transcribing what the, what what people want them to tell by actually interrogating uh, your uh, your subjects and and trying to find out the truth behind what they're saying, which often is the truth, but sometimes isn't. Uh, you're um, you're doing something that's not always entirely welcome. <laughs> and I get the impression that I, well, yes, absolutely. And I get the impression that philosophy, that strategy, also bleeds into your storytelling uh, uh, initiatives. Yes. I think so. Well, I mean, I, I, I want to tell stories that, that take people to a hard place and, and not a comfortable place. I think that the notion of a cozy murder mystery strikes me as antithetical. There's nothing cozy about murder. <laughs> uh, there is, and, and there's nothing, there should be nothing comfortable about, uh, about the stories that you hear. Well, sometimes there can be, but I'm not going to write them. There you go. Let somebody else do that job. You're, you're yeah. going to get under our skin and make us uncomfortable. That's my hope. <laughs> Excellent. I'm, Excellent. I'm just desperately hoping that when you get around to, to writing a, a guide to, to journalism, you call it a genial assault because that's the <laughs> one of the most perfect turns of phrase I've ever heard. Wow. Well, thank you. Yep. Yep. I, I can see t-shirts, t-shirts and keychains. Let's, let's monetize that. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's dive into this. I'm, I'm keen to get into our 20 minutes with David Nickel. I'm going to set the okay. timer here. And I have no doubt that we'll ignore it, but it's good to have goals. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to lead us off here. Now, back in 2014, uh, you did a great interview with Sean Moreland for the Postscripts into Darkness interview. Uh, and one of the many quotable quotes in there that you offered up was, I think atmosphere is a very important element in the sustenance of both life and fiction, which is to say you can't have either of those without also having atmosphere. Now, atmosphere as a writer that that's one of those it, it's it's a very potent but a, a, a very ephemeral nuance that that can be leveraged by an experienced well-read author 
And I hate ephemeral nuances <laughs> or, or rather I, I, that's not true. I hate flailing in the dark, trying to find them because everyone wants their, their writing to have that subtlety, that depth, that, that tone that, that can infuse their tales and transport their readers. So, and I know you can't give us a silver bullet to nail down atmosphere and I wouldn't ask you to, but Dave, can you deconstruct your experience of cultivating atmosphere in your stories because if if we can understand the symptoms of atmosphere then maybe our listeners can catch that disease if you know what i mean sure well i, I think i mean unfortunately what the the first step towards establishing atmosphere is actually ephemeral you kind of have to let yourself go you have to stop thinking that you're that, that you're writing a story and first that you're actually seeing the uh, and, and imagining the places that you're writing about in some depth you know, if, if, if you're writing a fantasy novel and are thinking about a great big wall between passes, try not to think about, uh, about Peter Jackson's movie, but think <laughs> about what that might, what that might, what that might be like and what would be to see that, those kinds of things. And that's, that's the first step when you can kind of, when you can kind of visualize the, um, the place and the time and the smells and all of the sensual details. And then the second thing, I think this is actually the most important thing. And one thing that you can really, uh, really push at is voice. Um, somebody's telling this story. They've got a point of view. When they see a great big wall between between two mountains, they have experience that that dictates how they respond to that, and they they also have a nuance about the way that they tell somebody about it. And those are the kinds of things that I think that really allow all of this to come together. Because the the, the thing with atmosphere is that it's um, it's not one thing. It's a collection of, of senses and impressions that are all fake, that are all, that are all bullshit because it's fiction and fiction is all bullshit <laughs> that, uh, that, that people, because they're, because they're willing to and hungry to imagine something themselves will put together in the back of their brain, deliver it to their, to the front of their brain in a, in, in a fully formed image. And they think, holy shit, atmosphere, but it's not, it's, it's, it, it's a bunch of little elements that together give you clues to think about what the, uh, what the world is like. Okay. I can see that. Now, just to just to dig in a little bit deeper, when when you talk about the fact that, that that somebody is is sharing these perceptions with you, somebody has feelings about what's happening uh, in the story as the narrative. Does that also apply? Do you think to like third person POVs where we're you know we may be close on one character, but does the I hate to use the word narrator, but does does the person who's telling the story even in third person? Does that person have feelings about what's happening? Uh, well, you, usually when I when I write a third person story, I write it in the point of view of a character. So uh, a bit of the voice of the uh, of the character themselves will still come through in the um, in the point of view. Uh, there are other ways to do this. You, if if one's going going fully omnis- omniscient. Then one, then one is being very, um, very descriptive. But at some point, the reader has to come to believe that whoever's telling the story is doing it for a reason, okay. uh, which means that even your omniscient uh, narrator has some sort of an agenda that they're trying to pursue. That's intriguing. And, um, a story is a, a story is a kind of argument, and it's it, it's a way that we that we choose to have people understand it in journalism. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about finding the narrative of a news story that I cover. I don't I usually cover crime, but but it's not just that there was a shooting in the neighborhood. It's that there's a neighborhood that may have particular conditions that are that that, that caused that shooting to arise, and then I try to tell people and sell people on this thing that I've learned and come to believe that uh, it is because of the crushing poverty in that neighborhood that that these things erupt. And so I'll ask questions to support that narrative when I'm interviewing people, or to just interrogate that narrative, 
see if it, see if it works, and then and then present that as as a set of evidence. And short short fiction and novels are the same way. You're presenting evidence to uh, to draw a reader to a thematic conclusion and a conclusion, a plot that hopefully makes a bit of sense and has some resonance. I think when you don't do that, when you don't have some level of argument in the story, it's very hard to keep a reader interested, and more important, it's very hard to keep myself interested as a writer to finish it. We'll be back with more of our conversation with David Nickel after this brief promotional break. Once upon a time, there lived a witch named Alba. I'm afraid chiropractic isn't covered for centaurs. Who had an apprentice called Magnus. Your neighborhood is full of smug, smart-ass woodland creatures, and they all hate me. And a fairy assistant named Holly. A team that cares! A team that heals! Together! And together, they tended to the king. I will not live with snakes on my head. The queen. Oh. Dare you address me like that? And all the people of the little kingdom of Farloria. I want a test for fatsoplasia. Alba, I think I have the plague. The plague, you say? Alba Salix, royal physician, a fairy tale comedy for the ear from Forgery League. Visit forgeryleague.com. Just fill out this patient information form, and Alba will see you in a minute. Now, let's get back to the conversation with David Nickel. I have never heard the telling of the story being described as an argument or, or the the advancement of an, an argument or a thesis that then must be proven and, and uh, uh, yeah. uh, engaged. That's inspired. That that changes the whole way that you approach an author beca- story because then even in the even third person omniscient, there is a character involved. There is uh, a sensibility that is overlaid. And if you've built your character, your narrator character, even though he's unnamed or she, uh, uh, then that does infuse the story with a very specific aesthetic, a very specific atmosphere. Yeah. I love talking to David because I always learn things and they're always really good things. What, what you, you're, talking about with the idea of, of presenting each story as an argument is really interesting. And because I, I come from a very, very loosely similar background to you, the, you know, I, I, I always get this kind of warm, fuzzy glow when I talk to a journalist whose first response is, well, the first thing you have to do is provide context. And, and it, th- there's always this kind of slightly audible, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing I find really interesting is, is oddly how that relates to some work I've been doing recently. I've been interviewing a, a lot of the authors on the, the Tor Novella initiative. And the, the first one through was a, an extraordinarily good novella called Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps by Kaya Shanti Wilson. And I read it, and I reviewed it, and uh, just to be temporarily not British for a moment, I'm a very good reviewer. I mean, I'm, I'm trained to, to critically pull themes out of text. <laughs> and that's not British because you are actually like advancing yourself and saying you're good at something? And not apologizing. <laughs> good man. Good man. Um, but, you know, I, I wrote, wrote my review of this and, and then pulled the questions out of that to, went to, to interview Wilson. And one, one of the things I said was I was really interested in a particular pattern that I'd noticed. And the response I got was, that's really interesting. I didn't plan that at all. That's not in there. And the the approach that you're talking about weirdly puts me in mind of Tapas. What you're doing is is setting out this argument and setting out this agenda. And you're almost steering the very nebulous element that there always is in fiction. Where Because I, I think of 
and again, this is something I've written about quite a lot. I, I, I think of, of fiction of all, for, all forms as the terrain that the author and the reader meet on. And mm. what you're doing is giving the reader a slightly more, noticeably more specific than usual map, where they have the option of, instead of just coming in with what they think, coming in and going, this is what David is putting forward. Let's talk about this. And you're... You're almost adding more tools to the reader's arsenal, even as you're adding more tools and more narrative architecture to the story. And that fascinates and impresses me. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it's, I, I should say that I don't come in uh, and I, I don't present a story with an argument that I could articulate over a beer or a cup of coffee. <laughs> One of the beauties of, of writing fiction as opposed to writing journalism is that I think in both cases you're, you're also offering up an interrogation. You start with a question. Um, in, in science fiction, what, what if is the obvious question? Uh, and then it's also what then, and it's a whole pile of other questions. And in the course of layering a story together, you sort of answer the questions for yourself in a way while, whilst raising others. And ultimately a, a work should become a complex enough creation that it's something again, that you could not have conceived of at the beginning, mm -hmm. but has taken you to a conclusion, which then in revision, you might hone a little bit, but it's still really open to people's in own engagement and their own experience with this. Because while you're presenting that argument, except in very rare occasions, you don't usually end with the moral of the, sto of the story explicitly stated. It right. should be emergent. Yeah, it, it's not often for the characters to look to camera and go, you know what, I learned something today. Right. <laughs> not that that doesn't it, it, happen, but... It, it can happen. I, I, I don't care for it. Although in, 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 in the right story, it's, it, it, can be, it can be the right thing to do. So, Alistair, I mean, that, I, when you were talking about your, the, the dichotomy between your, uh, your understanding of that story and the author's understanding of that story, I always find that very interesting uh, when, um, when a reader comes up with a with a different thesis than, uh, than I had, uh, concluded. I mean, remember Ellen Datlow when she, when she reprinted the Sloan men, which is a, a really nice early career boost for that and everything. And I was delighted to have it in there and, uh, and delighted to work with, with Ellen. But she, she, she said in an introduction that she thought, and I thought this story was terribly romantic for all its horror. And I looked at that with a bit of horror. I thought, my God, that was, I didn't think it was a romance. <laughs> I didn't think that it was actually all that romantic. I thought it was pretty awful. Um, and, uh, but, but it's also, uh, as I thought about it, yeah, it's a, actually a legitimate interpretation. Yeah, and that's an I, affirmation I, I, of, of the authors needing to release their works and allow them a life after you hit the publish button uh, uh, that you have absolutely no control over. Right, exactly. exactly. Uh, the, the other example of that I always really liked is there's a moment in The Invisibles by Grant Morrison where one of the characters talks about how Speed, the, the Keanu Reeves movie, is actually about human evolution. And I, I read this at a very formative age, and I, I'm abnormally fond of that ridiculous little film, and, <laughs> and, and, and spent a lot of time going, is it? Like, wow, it, it, it actually could be. And there is no way in hell that Graham Yost sat down and went, I'm going to write a novel about an exploding bus on the L.A. freeway that's actually about human evolution. <laughs> right. Yep, that, that comes out afterwards. And, and, and yes. that's, that's, that's the delight of all of that. Absolutely. And, and what you were saying earlier, Dave, about, the, about not knowing what that argument is initially, uh, that's a real affirmation of the process of writing, of, of you know, the work that gets done on a story. Some of it happens before you type, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, but most of that, that 
refinement and edge and voice and atmosphere and everything that we're talking about happens during the drafting of that first and sometimes second draft of the story. Oh, very much so. No, I mean that that that's where you kind of understand what you're what you're on about. Uh, I I really hate dra- uh, first draft writing um, because it's it's like walking uh, walking a plank into a fog where you and and, and you don't know if that plank's going to continue. Uh, <laughs> you are uh, you 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 are literally stepping into mystery when you describe these things and you 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 build things along as you go, uh, and it may be a ramshackle structure that that will that will fall apart. And the only way that you can tell that is by typing the end. Going away for uh, for a couple of days, coming back and looking at it and seeing if it still stands, and then if it doesn't, doing the repair work. The repair work is usually a lot more evident than the uh, than the draft work, <laughs> but not to the reader. The reader just sees the not end to the process. Reader. No, the reader, as far as the reader is concerned, I'm, I they're they're sitting down with me and I'm making up shit until I'm done. That's right. And, and, they, and, and the thing that they it, see came full cloth, whole cloth out of your brain yeah. with no edits whatsoever. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, let me let me steer the conversation a little bit in a slightly different direction. Your your background as you were advancing in your in your writerly mojo uh, included the uh, the excellent experience with the Cecil Street Irregulars, and and apparently something happened during those first years with the Irregulars that that somehow transformed your storytelling into something different and and those transformations i always find incredibly fascinating so could you wax rhapsodic a little bit over what it was that you discovered about what you had been writing that was not clicking or working and and what did you do to rectify that 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 obviously made your stories more approachable by readers well, I think one of the things that, that is helpful in a, in a writer's workshop is it shows you how to revise, which, which is something that I didn't really, I didn't really understand. Uh, I would have friends who would be reading stories who knew a little bit about writing but, but could only go, only go so far. Uh, my, my mom would read stories and, 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 and love them because she, she, she loved me very much and appreciated that, but it was really no help at all in this case. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so – when I joined the workshop, I actually auditioned with a piece. You have to audition for workshops. The, the, the rule that Judith Merrill had set was that, um, that you should really be writing with people who are about your peers and workshopping with people who are about your peers. Working shop, workshopping with someone who is very much ahead of you on the learning curve will just make you ape their style. And workshopping with, uh, with your mom will not, will not necessarily um, <laughs> help at all. But um, the thing that I learned was that I had to be communicating in a way that I, that I, that I wasn't, I was, uh, I mean, my, the, the story that I auditioned with was essentially a piece of Lovecraftian fanfic and it was, it was written using elements of his style that I thought were okay at the time, but clearly weren't and using plot elements and, uh, and whatnot that were a little bit obvious. And I needed someone to tell me that, you know, this prose isn't quite working. It's a bit too, it's a bit too dense and rich and, um, and really purple. I needed people <laughs> to tell me that, um, that this, this plot is something people have seen a million times before, before and this was a, with a, a room of people that really hated Lovecraft. Uh, so there was no, uh, it, it, it's not like they had been, been reading deep to discover my, my obvious, uh, my obvious failings there. Uh, and, um, what was also good was I, w- I, I went in as somebody who wanted to write horror fiction to a, a group of people who mostly wanted to write science fiction. And we had to talk a little bit about our respective genres and how they, um, and, and how they all worked and, and sort of reconcile the common elements that were, uh, that, that, that were really good storytelling. 
So that was a real revelation. At that point, I could start to move forward beyond um, beyond my own 286, I believe I was using at the time, uh, <laughs> and into the you know, larger world. And what that also did was, uh, in addition to, to giving me a critique of my own work, I was able to critique the work of others and start to understand the ways to talk about uh, to talk about plot, to talk about character, to uh, to talk about prose. I would see people people's successes and their failures, and in that, be able to read my own work with a more educated eye and a more critical eye. And finally, it was a community of people, which is which is what it still is. We actually still do meet, um, not not as often as we as we have in the past, uh, but it enabled me to speak with editors, with other writers beyond that. It, gave me an, ent an entrance into the convention circuit, which I hadn't really been doing before, and generally put me in a place of uh, in a place where there's a creative community that I could engage with and ultimately meet editors and and talk about uh, talk about what we might do next. Uh, and there, especially with with the the advent of the internet and social media and the connectivity that has been fostered with that, being a part of that community is is vital to an author. I yeah. think that wants to engage. Yeah, I mean, the thing, I, I I was a part of that community before um, before the internet really had an an, an, an element in our uh, in our social and professional development. I mean, there 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 was there was genie at the time, not even that. <laughs> Prodigy, was, uh, yes. I, I, wow. I think I think I, I think you pretty much had to be a spy to use the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is right. This is back in the '90s, right when you first yeah, started so up with them. So Carl, Carl Schrader, one of our members, knew about it. But that, but he was the only one. <laughs> it was secret <laughs> knowledge. Well, and and yeah. Al, I know that you have have one of one of your primary joys in in your writing pursuits has been, you know, the review and not necessarily criticism, although there is that element to it as well of comic books, of novels and stories and film. Mm -hmm. um, how has that has that contributed? Do you think to your to your fiction to the to the tales that you want to tell? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, in two ways, one good, one bad. The bad one is I'm, I'm very, very aware that when I was writing fiction seriously, which was about four or five years ago at this point, and is also on deck to come back, when I was good, I was good. When I was bad, I was a little too fond of other people's stylistic elements, <laughs> which comes entirely from, to, from the fact that I work primarily as as a critic and because i'm like i say can trained almost conditioned to be able to understand stories and pull them apart and it's very difficult to not default onto riffing on that kind of thing mm -hmm. the plus side to what i've done in the past is i have a very very clear idea of what i want to do in the future and that really breaks down into two again into two different things i have an understanding of what i want to write and where i think it might fit in the market and i also have an understanding of the fact that i need to be careful not to have a not, not to be having a little bit too much fun really uh, yes uh there, there is there's a project i have next year which i i could write now and it would be very very good fun and awful because <laughs> i would be writing it for 16 year old me uh, and if I leave it another three or four months and come at it the same way I come at the RPG stuff, which is almost from an academic perspective, I will be able to build in the the kind of gleeful pulp insanity that I want to drop into this thing. But I'll, I will also be able to approach it in a way which means people other than me will enjoy reading it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, and I can see how, you know, putting yourself in that analytic mode to assess a story gives you, if nothing else, uh, a set of qualities that you find works 
and that you find doesn't work. And and David, I would assume this is what you discovered through the Cecil Street Irregulars. Is is that then, does that become like a laundry list of of things to pursue in your writing by, by analyzing other people's writing, saying, I really like how he did that. I'd like to do that too. And then you work towards that? I try not to do that. Um, one, of, one of the big struggles as a writer is to not let the voices of others influence your own voice too much. Um, yeah, what I like to do actually is to read, I'll read broadly and in genres that I don't write in, in huh. areas that I don't write in. Uh, it's, it's something that I learned very early on in newspaper design when a bunch of us were trying to put together a, a fairly hip uh, 1980s looking paper at the North York Mirror was I thought, you know, if we go to European fashion magazines and take a look at how they do layouts, we can probably crib some elements from that. And no one will know because we're a community newspaper. And sure enough, you can, right? You can, you can, <laughs> uh, you can gather a lot of interesting, interesting material from diverse sources and make it into something that's your own. And that's the thing. So with my fellow writers, a little bit too close to home, uh, a little bit too much like plagiarism then. Sure. <laughs> but, sure. Um, yeah, no, uh, I can see that. Uh, yeah. But when you take a look at some Hemingway, some, some Daphne du Maurier, some Raymond Carver, and think about how the tricks that those people are doing to pursue very different effects might be used for your own effects, you can really do some interesting stuff. Okay. Awesome. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I've heard, I've heard several writers uh, uh, espouse the virtues of, of taking the, the critical eye upon not only your work, but other people's work and, and reading, mm-hmm. as you say, broadly and drawing on those styles, those themes, those executions and, and building that palette in your own mind. Uh, guys, I, I, I hate to do this, but the clock just invited me to a parking garage and is brandishing a knife at me. <laughs> and um, I, I can only assume that means that either the meds have kicked in or <laughs> it's time to wrap this up, uh, which is a sadness for me because this has been fabulous. David Nickel, thank you so much. This has been enlightening and, and inspiring, and we really appreciate it, sir. Well, it's been a ball. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. Al, holy crap, writerly goodness flailing around this place like like poltergeist bouncing off of a a Steven Spielberg movie. Um which which one of those uh, uh bits of writerly mojo uh really jumped out at you that you're gonna shove right now into your into your writer's toolbox? I, I think the biggest thing is is David's point about uh story is argument and the importance of context. And that feels like it's closed to circuit for me, that you can apply very similar tools that I use in kind of the very focused nonfiction writing that so much great journalism has to be to fiction and make it just as successful and make the fiction itself even stronger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I, my thing that I'm taking away is... is, is tied inextricably to that, which was the idea of, of the narrator, even a third-person omniscient narrator, being a character with values and things that they like and don't like and a personality uh, that, that, you know, as a theater major uh, character is where I live. I love that. And there has been an ongoing challenge of, you know, people say, how do you must evolve your authorial voice? And it's like, Oh God, how do I do that? It's a character. And as soon as you say that, it's like, I get it now. 
that yeah. makes perfect sense. That was that was an epiphany for me. So awesome. And and dear friends, I'm sure out there, wherever you are in your car or at your desk or whatever, your 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 notes were scribbling, your keyboards were clacking. That's brilliant. Yes, I'm writing that down right now. Uh, uh, now here's the here's the awesomeness of the round table is that all of that mojo that you just experienced, your brain is going, I can use this, I can do this. Come back in seven days, okay? We're going to have Dave back. We're going to bring Al back. And then we're going to add into this nuclear equation a, a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer. And at that point, this thing's going to go nuclear and it's going to be amazing. So do come back and, and check that out. But I know... Holy crap, it's seven days. And, you know, if my order for my TARDIS had finally come in, it wouldn't be an issue. We could crank these things out every day. But for some reason, linear time continues to thwart me. So, Al, help us out here, man. Linear time is the bane of our existence. Seven days must pass before our friends can rejoin us. What should they be doing in those seven days? Three really simple things. The first one is think about what genre of fiction you read the least. The second is find, let's be nice to you. Let's let's go with some short, short fiction. Find an <laughs> anthology in that genre. Read it. The third thing, write a blog post about how you feel about that and what you've learned. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Integrating everything that we've been discussing for the last, eh, let's call it a half hour, uh, uh, <laughs> into uh, into into one discreet exercise. Awesome, Al. Really, we need to gather these up and like publish them. You know, Al's, Al's bon mots of wisdom. <laughs> That's awesome. Very cool. And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, that you find what you're looking for. So set your sights to go out and find the wow, the 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 yeah the, oh my god that's fabulous and if you look for that in your worlds i promise you you will find it we'll see you in just seven days until then you guys stay cool stay frothy and stay awesome and we will talk to you soon bye-bye This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.